So I have a title for this message this morning. I kind of always have a title. I don't always use it. It's just how I save it on my computer. But I thought this one might, I don't know, might pique the interest of maybe some of you. Celebrities. It worked. <laughs> Celebrities, serpents, and the spirit. Celebrities, serpents, and the spirit. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be surprised anymore, but you know, a lot of what Ivan shared this morning about how we're to live as in the light and as light um, is very much what this message is about, what our text is about this morning. So if you want to turn, it's the very last paragraph of Philippians chapter one. Well, it's probably probably the last paragraph in your in your Bible. It's Philippians 1, 27 through 30. The church in America has many needs. Um, I think some of the most significant needs it has remain ignored um, because they're not popular. They don't bring the kind of power and influence that, that many feel the church needs. Um, needs like uh, displaying mercy and compassion and love. Other needs the church rightly seeks but looks for them in all the wrong places. Just like some people look for love in all the wrong places. I remember that song my parents listened to on the radio when I was a kid, right? You know, looking for something in the wrong place is an interesting practice. You either recognize it, you admit it, you retreat, you, you turn away from it, or you stay in those wrong places and find whatever kind of answer seems like the best one available. One of these needs that we have, and I think this is a right need, I think it's a good need, um, especially in times of suffering and of persecution, is to have our faith validated, for lack of a better word. In other words, even though we believe and we're committed to Jesus, we desire at times to have some kind of sign, some sort of indication that our loyalty to King Jesus is rightly placed. This kind of validation is important. It's important for us and important for those who are looking at us as we carry out our walk, our lives in this real and watching world. But we often look for meeting this need in all the wrong places. This morning we're going to look at three ways of seeking validation for our faith. Two of them seem like the best that we can do if we don't admit we're looking in the wrong place. And the third comes straight from the Apostle Paul. It's as close to us as our very breath, but maybe harder to grasp than the other two. One of the most popular places in which we look for validation is on the two coasts. I don't know if we refer to it as the West Coast here, since it's kind of east of us, but Hollywood and Washington, D.C. Don't worry, Amber, I'm not talking about politics, only politicians. <laughs> She's warned me. Essentially, we want fame to validate our faith. 
I use these two locations metaphorically to point out that we want celebrities to validate our Christianity. We want fame to validate our faith. So we look. We look to movie stars, to athletes, musicians, celebrities, politicians. We get excited when we hear that a well-known football player thanks Jesus when he wins a game, as if somehow his endorsement of our faith should mean something to us. We look for politicians who belong to a church like ours. We think that somehow if a man or a woman who is rich and famous, maybe just rich or famous, that if they share our faith, our confession, then that proves that our faith and confession are true, or at least that we're not crazy, at least that it's a reasonable thing for reasonable people to believe. But celebrities and politicians come and go, some of them making our faith more ridiculous than more reasonable. But we don't learn our lesson, and we'll get excited again the next time we see Philippians 4.13, maybe the most written, the most tattooed, and least understood verse in all of Philippians. When we see it tattooed on a muscular athletic arm or inscribed on a sneaker with a Sharpie. In fact, I saw it this weekend in a college basketball game. Uh, Guy had a big Philippians 4.13 under a big basketball on his shoulder. Another place we look for validation is in things like signs and wonders, right? What better way to show the watching world that our message, our gospel is true than in these grand displays of what we perceive to be God's power? I think signs and wonders had their place, not only in the birth of the church, but also throughout Israel's history. But they weren't common everyday occurrences And as Paul tells us, they can't compare with the greatest gift of love. Signs and wonders may still play a role in the church today, but they can never overshadow love. Seeking powerful displays of faith takes many forms today, but there is one form that will never, never, ever be a temptation for me. So sometime years ago, I got on YouTube and I searched a day in the life of a pastor. And ever since then, I get these day-in-the-life videos that are recommended for me, and I'm intrigued by them. The day in the life of a professional athlete, a day in the life of a college professor. And just uh, two days ago, I got all these day-in-the-life-of-a-pastor videos that popped up. So I started watching one, which linked me to another. Let me tell you about a day in the life, or maybe a week in the life, of this pastor. Well, by the way, what I learned about a lot of pastors is they spend a lot of time at coffee shops and restaurants with other pastors. (laughs) I just thought that was interesting. This pastor does a lot of things many pastors do. He wears a suit. He spends a lot of time at the church. He visits and prays for people. He even volunteers at a substance abuse counseling center as a former addict. His church looks like a lot of churches. It has pews and a cross and a sign outside. It even has wood paneling all around, just like this one. The service begins with prayer and music. The music is my kind of music. 
It's like Chicago blues meets the Baptist hymnal. It's great. Uh, the pastor plays his electric guitar. Another pastor plays the drums. Others play the electric organ and the bass. The tradition is clearly Pentecostal. Not my tradition, but the tradition of many I love and respect. But what comes next would find me hitting the exit at full speed. Just remember, I don't have to be faster than the snakes, just faster than the rest of you. Yes, snakes. There are around 100 snake-handling churches in existence today, almost entirely in Appalachia, parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, West Virginia, North Carolina, that area. And at some point in the service, while the music is playing and the preacher is preaching, out come the snakes, all venomous, primarily rattlesnakes. Proponents of this practice believe that God will allow them to handle the snakes as a sign. One pastor, a young man with a new wife and an even newer baby girl, explained that being able to handle the serpents without getting bit was a sign to unbelievers that their gospel was true. Why was such a young man a pastor? Well, his father was the pastor until he died from a rattlesnake bite. My point's not to criticize the practice, but just to point out that they do so because they want their faith validated. At least they're not looking for a celebrity endorsement. What I'd like to say this morning is that we do have a sign. We have the opportunity to show each other and the watching world that our message is true and that our loyalty to the King of Kings is rightly placed. And it doesn't depend on any celebrity endorsement or, or a display of signs and wonders. Both of these things could happen. But Paul's vision for this kind of validation is much more permanent than a celebrity endorsement. And it doesn't involve snakes though it may be even scarier. In Philippians 1, 27 to 30, Paul transitions from giving an account of his circumstances, which is really more about the progress of the gospel than about him, to addressing the circumstances of the saints in Philippi, which is really more about the progress of the gospel than about them. He writes, verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a, manner, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or whether I remain absent, I should hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind by contending side by side for the faith of the gospel and by not being intimidated in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of their destruction, but of your salvation a sign which is from God. For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for him, since you are encountering the same conflict that you saw me face and now hear that I am facing. So imagine that your loyalty to Jesus is countercultural. Imagine that you live in a culture that doesn't honor Jesus, that has consequences for loyalty to him. If we don't see that following Jesus is 
cultural. It's because either we don't understand our culture and or we don't understand what loyalty to Jesus entails. You've heard a message, good news about a king, a different kind of king in many ways. The king who was also God, became a slave, suffered death, and rose from the dead. You were persuaded that this story was true and that this king was worthy of your faith, of your allegiance. But you live in a culture where there are several God options. So you might suppose that your new allegiance will go largely unnoticed. So you go to work. Let's say you're a carpenter. You belong to a guild, a union of sorts with other carpenters. Uh, This can be a good thing for business, but in your culture, it also carries a religious significance. Your carpenter's guild has their own patron deity, a god who watches over your business. Periodically, your guild offers sacrifices to this deity as prayers for good business. However, your new allegiance to King Jesus, who himself was a once-for-all sacrifice, means that you no longer worship with your carpenter friends. Your new lack of allegiance to their God means to them that you're putting their lives and their livelihoods at risk. So you're ostracized, you're blackballed, your business ends, your source of income to take care of your family is gone. Your your reputation as a non-believer in the pagan cult means you can't find work anywhere. Essentially, you are seen to have revoked your citizenship in the public life, and you will suffer the consequences. That's just one example of what it might have been like to choose to follow Jesus in the first century. But now Paul tells you how to live as a citizen. It's really ironic. The word translated in most of your translations, either live or walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, is not the word that means to live or to walk. Paul uses the words that mean something like carry out your citizenship. So while the public life has been seemingly destroyed by your new allegiance to King Jesus, Paul says that you still have a public life. You still have citizenship, but it's been radically redirected. While your public life previously paralleled those of your friends, neighbors, and co-workers and reflected the pride and nationalism that would have come from being a citizen of a Roman colony settled by, a veteran, by veterans of a war that defeated the, assassin, the assassins of Julius Caesar, Paul says your public life must now parallel the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he means by carrying out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel. It means that the way we conduct ourselves before others, not just in here and not just in the privacy of our homes, but the way we conduct ourselves before others should reflect the ways of our king and the ways of his kingdom. It doesn't mean that our conduct earns our salvation, but that our conduct should resemble and reflect our salvation. It means that while we might be accused of not going along with the larger culture, the accepted ways of carrying out our citizenship, we should never be accused of having a message that doesn't match our manner of living. 
So it means that our manner of living matches our message. What does this kind of public life look like? First of all, understand that living out our loyalty to King Jesus is not easy. And Paul knows it's not. In fact, this short passage is full of words that are used in a military context or in, an, or, or in the context of, of the arena of an athlete. He begins by telling us that we must stand firm in our unity. Standing firm is military vocabulary. It's used of soldiers who stay at their post regardless of how the battle around them is progressing. We don't surrender and we don't retreat regardless of how things look around us. That's what it means to stand firm. So why? Why don't we surrender? Why don't we retreat? Why do we stand firm? There are many reasons, I suppose, but Paul has modeled something for us that we can learn from. You see, it might look, as we're standing at our post, that we're losing the battle. It did for Paul, as we find him in prison for the sake of the gospel. But a right perspective shows us that what looks like defeat is actually a means to advance the gospel and to give courage to other believers. So we don't retreat and we don't surrender because if we're fighting the right battle with the, with the right weapons out of allegiance to the right king, then the option of defeat is not even on the table as Paul so beautifully demonstrates in his own life and as Jesus does as well. This refusal to retreat is emboldened by the fact that we are not alone in the struggle. We are contending side by side. This could be another military reference, but it probably images gladiators fighting together in the Colosseum. So what unites these gladiators or what unites these soldiers? Paul says it's the spirit. Now this is a little unclear. Um, some think that he may be just referencing the human spirit, that we should all sort of be one in purpose and that you know our, our metaphorical spirits should be united in what we're trying to do. But if that's the case here, then it's about the only time that Paul uses the word spirit that way. Um, for Paul, I believe that all uses of the word spirit should be capitalized. There's really nothing else that can unite us in this battle. One of the things I love about this statement, this command to unity through the Spirit, is that it implies diversity. Who were the Philippian believers? Well, we don't know exactly, but we can put together streams of evidence to sort of paint a picture of what life in this early church in this early church would have looked like. Some were Jews and some were Gentiles. Some were men and some were women. Some were free and some were slaves. In fact, it seems that in most of the early church communities, slaves composed the majority of the church. 
We also know that there were some wealthy families, some people of means in the church. So if this faith community in Philippi roughly reflected the prevailing population, understand this, only about 10% could read. The ancient Near East had a literacy rate of only about 10%. And just as an aside, think for a moment about how much we consider what's essential for discipleship depends on reading. That's a very, very modern way of thinking about things. This is a diverse community, economically, socially, racially, educationally, yet they share the same spirit by whom all of them cry out, Abba, Father. So this public life then, this life as citizens in front of the watching world, but not as citizens of a Roman colony now, rather as citizens of heaven, as citizens of the gospel, as citizens loyal to King Jesus, it's not only characterized by unity through the Spirit, but also by courage in the face of intimidation. Your translations probably say not being in any way intimidated or not being frightened. Um, I think the King James says something like in no way terrified. This is another military term. It references what can happen to horses on the battlefield. They scatter in chaos. They go from some kind of organization to a terrorized chaos. So why don't we scatter? Why aren't we terrified? Well, we have the fruit of the Spirit, and we know that God's not given us a spirit of fear. But there's another reason we show courage rather than fear, terror, or intimidation. And I think it has something to do with what Paul has already modeled and demonstrated and something Jesus modeled for us as well. We're not intimidated, frightened, or terrified by our opponents because we know what victory looks like. I was intimidated once when I was 13. It was the fall of my seventh grade year at Red Oak Junior High, and I played football. Early in the season, we traveled 10 miles to play our rivals, our arch enemies. We never beat Waxahachie. Never, ever, ever. And while I had never played against them at this point, I knew all about them. I guess I'd seen my brother play and lose to them for years and years and years. But I also knew about the rumors. There were rumors that their seventh graders were like 16-year-olds who had failed a bunch of times. And they should have been in high school, but they were on the Waxahachie 7th grade football team. There are also rumors. I like to say I was a smart kid, but I wasn't very bright. There was rumors that they hid razor blades underneath their pads, and they'd use every opportunity they could in the pile to pull them out and hurt you. Needless to say, we scattered like horses. 
We scattered like horses on the battlefield as soon as we got off the bus. I do have to say that my fears were appropriate. Um, there were no razor blades, but they had to have been at least 16. I remember looking at my opponent across the line of scrimmage. Underneath his hairy arms were big muscles. And through his face mask, I could detect the beginning of a mustache. I was intimidated. I was terrified. I was frightened, not just because of his facial hair, but also because we were both trying to win the same, the same game in the same way that anyone tries to win a football game. I wanted to score more points. And in football, you generally score more points by being faster, stronger, and tougher than the other team. So yeah, I was intimidated. But let me give you a different scenario. What if we stepped off that bus and the referees met with us and decided that the winner would be determined by a math test or a science test or even a spelling test? Then I'm no longer intimidated by Mr. Muscles and Mustache. I push my glasses up on my nose, I find a sharp pencil, and I mop up the field with him. You see, so if the Philippians and their opponents are trying to win the same game in the same way, then they would be right to scatter. But Paul knows, and they know, as we should know, that victory as a citizen of the gospel it looks like the cross. It looks like the empty tomb. It's about the advancement and progress of the message that can certainly gain ground through freedom, but it can also do so in bondage, in prison, as Paul's just demonstrated. The fact that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews doesn't mean we turn and run in fear because we also know that it's the power of God for salvation. You see, victory looks different for those who are loyal to King Jesus. All of this leads to what I think is the climax of this passage. So when you're facing opposition and you're faced with this opportunity to surrender and retreat, you need a sign that you are loyal to the right king, that you are following the right path with the right plan of action. Paul tells us in verses 28 and 29 that this unity in the Holy Spirit and this courage in the face of opposition are themselves signs. They are signs of our salvation and signs of our opponent's destruction. In other words, our faith is validated, not by celebrities or serpent handling, but by unity in the midst of diversity and by courage in the midst of opposition. Some of us are as scared of unity as I am of snakes. Unity in the church is not easy. Striving for unity means that I might have to give up control of my agenda, of my opinions, of my desires. 
Striving for unity through the Spirit in the church means that while I might hold some sort of rank or status outside the church, that inside the church, the cross levels me. Striving for unity through the Spirit in the church means allowing others to think differently about issues that aren't essential to the faith of the gospel, to living a life loyal to King Jesus. Courage in the face of opposition means we don't back down or descend into chaos. Courage means that we have to reassess what victory looks like. And if we can't say with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain, then we're fighting the wrong battle with the wrong weapons. And we don't know what victory looks like. If we can't see that our opportunity to believe as well as our opportunity to suffer both come from God, then we will fail to find unity. We will fail to find courage. And we'll fail to live out these virtues for the public to see as signs of our salvation and of their destruction. And we'll fail to see them turn and follow us as we follow Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, teach us, remind us what your victory looks like. That it's not wrapped up in numbers or money or power. Or political influence or some kind of celebrity endorsement of our loyalty to you. Teach us the way of the cross with the hope of resurrection that we might be united in the Spirit. Lord, give us the grace we need to give others freedom in all the things, all the different opinions and interpretations and different ways of understanding um, uh, how we think church should be, but unite us in what matters the most. Lord, because we all, you've given us all the same Spirit, Bring that kind of unity to this church, to all of your churches around the world, that we might live our lives, Lord, in a very public way, in boldness, that others would see our unity and our courage, that they would understand that that means that our message is true. Might we be the kind of people, Lord, that as we testify to our own salvation and to our opponent's destruction, that those very opponents would would see it clearly and would turn and follow us as we follow you. Uh, We know that the only way that that happens is, is through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord and our King to whom we pledge allegiance. We ask that you would do these things 
uh, not through our own uh, intelligence and ingenuity and creativity. Uh, I mean, use all of those things, Lord, but only as tools, only as gifts graciously given for your glory. Amen. Sing the first song and then...